You don't have to be a jet setter to find just the right ski slopes for you in the Alps. If you're in St. Moritz, you're going to be skiing from Champagne Bar to Champagne Bar. You don't even need to take your skis off. Scotsman Don White now lives near the slopes in northern Italy. He joins us in a moment to fill us in on the alpine ski scene. And nearby in Bavaria, a storybook castle had a dark story during World War II when Nazis used it to store thousands of stolen art treasures. Coming up, we'll meet Harry Etlinger. As a German-born American soldier, he helped retrieve Europe's great art from Hitler's hidden storage vaults and reminds us what happened to his native Germany. We have to respect each other as human beings, and we have to respect each other in our culture, or we will no longer exist as an organized form of civilization. He's joined by Robert Edsel, who runs the Monuments Men Foundation, which keeps their work going. Winter fun in the Alps and saving Europe's art in World War II. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Imagine entering the massive chambers of a salt mine in rural Germany and finding thousands of art treasures from all over Europe stashed away by Nazi thieves. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, the story of the Monuments Men gets personal. They're the enlisted men in the Allied forces who helped restore the Nazi plunder to its rightful owners. In 1945, Harry Etlinger was a 19-year-old American soldier, eager to help the Allies in his native Germany. Harry's ability to translate German led him to work in the abandoned offices of Hitler himself. He joins us in just a bit, along with the head of the Monuments Men Foundation, to tell us how their work continues to this day. First, we'll start out on a lighter note, in the Alpine sun, as we look at skiing options for winter fun in the Alps. A lot of people can travel to Europe all their lives and never consider going there in the winter for a little skiing. I love skiing, and there are some distinct differences between Europe and the United States if you're a fan of the slopes. And we're going to learn about that right now. Donald White joins us. Don's a Scotsman who's made his home in northern Italy, tour guide in the summer, and what else you can do in the winter but ski. (laughs) Don, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's a wonderful combination. (laughs) Yeah, work as a tour guide in the summer and then enjoy those Alps. Now, you've got... You got ski resorts. I mean, think about it. The Alps arc right across. They basically go from Vienna to Marseille. Yes, yeah. and with lots of different cultures. Lots of cultures. You've yeah. got ski resorts in in France, Switzerland, Italy, Austria, even Slovenia. Yeah. When you think about skiing from your Italian base, what do you think of when you think of different countries and your ski options? Well, for us, um, obviously, the, the north of Italy, the Valtellina, where I live in Lombardy, that's our nearest stuff. But from um, an hour and 40 minutes drive, I'm in St. Moritz, I'm into Switzerland. I could be in France in four hours. I could be up to Switzerland and San Bernardino in a couple of hours. Wow. Austria, take us about three hours. Now, if you've there. got Austria and Switzerland at your at your doorstep, along with Italy, mm-hmm. would you go to France or Germany? I think it's a, a matter of taste and, and maybe what time of year as well. France has got the high skiing in Europe. It's got some of the most extensive skiing, some of the most challenging skiing. Maybe not so cute for apri-ski. <laughs> okay, so apri-ski is a big deal in Europe. Very big. I want Very to talk big. about that in a minute, but you talked about the highest mountains. and Now, when you think about American resorts and uh, European ski resorts, you know, the European mountains are just huge, and the vertical drop is astounding in Europe. Yes. We have maybe 5,000 feet drops in some resorts. And in the United States, the 2,000-foot drop is respectable. Vail, one of the yes. great places, yeah. just yeah. like three yeah. or 4,000 feet. So you're talking 5,000, 6,000 feet drop in Europe. Cortina, I believe, is 6,000 feet. Yes. San Moritz is high as well, Livigno. So these are huge, huge mountains that you're skiing on. Yeah. One of the notorious things about skiing in Europe from a lot of American experiences is the chaos in the lines. How do you handle that? I mean, I don't, you don't like people, strangers stepping on my skis. Well, I mean, it's the same thing when you travel in Italy in the summer, Rick. I mean, it's chaotic everywhere. That's a good so point. If, if you, you don't have sharp elbows, that. you're not going to get... So think of the if lines. If you can drive in Italy, you can ski in Italy. You just do it the same way. <laughs> so the aggressive ones, they get to the lift first. Yes, but, you know, you... you pick up a little hints of the best time to go. You know, you go over lunchtime, you avoid the crowds, you try to avoid the school holidays. Because you okay. have to remember, a lot of the schools in Germany and Italy, northern Italy, they'll have their white week where the school closes down, they all go off. And they do stagger them a little bit in the, the Swiss towns, for yeah. example, so they don't all go at the same time. But if you can avoid those weeks when all the school kids are going to be there. Yeah. You know, like middle of January is just after the New Year holidays, away from the Christmas holidays. Then right. you can... You can avoid the the really bad 
crowds. Avoid Easter at all costs. <laughs> avoid Easter. Avoid yeah. the white weeks. And yeah. they actually have a week dedicated to holiday. And a, a lot, lot of, of the them kids do. Just yeah. go skiing. Uh, so yeah, and they get their week off and they go off skiing. Do the young skiers, um, are they inclined to snowboard or ski? Well, that's something that's changed over the years. Obviously, now snowboarding is maybe more hip. Uh, but I think it's, it's still pretty much half and half. There's those who like to ski, those who like to snowboard. I've heard that. that and my experience is the, uh, the snow in Europe can be pretty icy. It can. Um, it varies also from, from place to place. I mean, places like Austria, you can actually ski at very low levels because you're skiing virtually on a, on a carpet of grass, so you need very little snow. Ah. Uh, whereas when you go to the high French Alps, you need lots of snow to cover all the rocks. Isn't that interesting? So you've got these pastoral uh, pasture lands almost yeah. uh, that yeah. are, are skiing. In the, in, they in are. The you're skiing down, yeah, the cow slopes, basically. <laughs> <laughs> the cow slopes. Are the slopes groomed? Are they busy at night figuring out the slopes? They are. They do groom very well. They also, a lot of the resorts will have night skiing. They're, they're making snow every place now. And, they, and they making snow. I understand money. you don't build a ski lift these days without, without plumbing in snow making gear. That absolutely is changing the whole face of, of skiing because it means they can guarantee the, the snow throughout the season. Is there cross-country skiing in Europe like we're so Absolutely. popular Absolutely. If you go up to the Engadine in particular, that's ah. a beautiful area for cross-country skiing. If you think of those frozen lakes at St. Moritz, where, where winter sports started off. And so this is uh, southeast Switzerland. Southeast Switzerland. And a lot of people love um, cross-country there because they've got miles and miles of prepared tracks, in particular over the frozen lakes. Really? So Engadine is that wonderful remote enclave in Switzerland, the fourth language of Switzerland, really. The people there speak They speak Romansh. Yes. Romansh, which is a, Romansh, yeah. Like yeah. A, directly descended from the Latin. From Latin, yeah. yeah, yeah. Fascinating. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking skiing in the Alps with Donald White, a lucky Scotsman who's settled in northern Italy tours all over Europe in the summer, skis all over the Alps in the winter. Of course, when you think about skiing in Europe, as much focus is on the social atmosphere as in the athletics. Very much so, and especially as you get a little bit older. (laughs) I find that I'm very much a fair-weather skier now, so I go when it's beautiful weather, and really the highlight of the day for us now is as much lunch in the mountain as it is... uh, (laughs) Lunch in the mountain... (laughs) I, that's a beautiful thing because we would have a, a quick hamburger or a bowl of chili and back out on the slopes. Yeah. You didn't really have a whole lot of variety in the restaurants there. But that's one of the great things in Europe, the, the diversity of culture and food which we have up in the mountains. I, I've discovered new dishes in my area, which... New dishes? Yeah. What, what's an example of some fine food you've had oh, for lunch on the slopes? Well, in the, in the area of northern Italy where I, where I do a lot of skiing, we've got things like pizzoccheri, which is very famous. And this is a kind of um, wholemeal pasta, which is made with potatoes, it's made with cabbage, it's made with garlic, butter and cheese just to lighten it up a little bit. So it's kind of, <laughs> a hearty, you'll, find, uh, you'll find a lot of the, the food throughout the Alps is going to have potatoes and cheese in some right. way. A roasty in Swiss. Roasty or yeah. uh, tartiflette or we have uh, a wonderful one I discovered called tarots. It only comes from the opera Valtellina. And it's made with kind of mashed potato, green beans, white beans, and cheese melted through it. Wow. So this whole social thing, I guess, you know, the Europeans, while well, well, some people are out there for the moguls, other people are going to be sipping their coffee or their glühwein and just enjoying the view and, and chatting. Yes. I mean, families go, some of them don't even ski, but they can still enjoy a, a day out in the mountains or weekend out and they can meet up for lunch. Okay. So après ski, what does that mean literally? Après ski means what you do after skiing, but when does your ski day stop? After one run in the morning or, <laughs> so, or later on in the evening? So it's everything to do with um, nice warm drinks in the snow when you're warming up afterwards. So Après ski is not necessarily after you're done skiing. It's how you enjoy this whole social and uh, sort of the relaxing element of it. Absolutely. Huh? Well, let's talk about alcohol because I know the mm. Europeans love their alcohol. In Austria, what would be the drink of choice oh, for skiing? Uh, well, I love Jäger tea. Jäger tea, that's that? going to be... Uh, tea with rum in it. Okay. Uh, that warms you up pretty nicely as and well. And how do you warm yourself up in Germany? In Germany, we probably have some kind of um, schnapps, I would schnapps. think, yes. Uh-huh. And there's different uh, flavored schnapps. Yes. And then sometimes you'll mix that with your hot red wine. That could be good as well. The Glühwein, of course, is uh, uh, standard throughout Switzerland, throughout the Alpine countries. Glühwein. Hot mulled wine. Generally yeah. red wine? 
red wine, absolutely. With, with uh, spices. It's got spices in it, a lot of cinnamon, nutmeg. It uh, has a very strong odor. You can smell it from halfway down the mountain and you're attracted into the... <laughs> <laughs> Hard to keep your momentum up after some glue vine, I would think. Or? Well, yeah, but then you might want to sparkle it up a bit. If you're in St. Moritz, you're going to be skiing from Champagne Bar to Champagne Bar. You don't even need to take your skis off. You can just actually ski up and ski have a glass, and have of, a glass of champagne. Yes, yes, yes. My yes, goodness. Yes. In Switzerland? Well, they actually drink quite a bit of beer as well. Though. Beer, Maybe yeah. too cold for that. <laughs> I have fond memories of my Kaffee Fertig. Ah, Kaffee Fertig, of course, yes. Well, say that. That's a nice Swiss accent you got there. Uh, Kaffee Fertig, Kaffee Lutz, <laughs> Kaffee Plof. What's in it? So Kaffee Fertig literally means coffee finished. Finished off, yes. It's like, uh, I'm, I'm uh, done for the day or something. Well, right? I don't know if you're going to be done for the day, but coffee it's very with, warm. with schnapps. And in Italy, where you live, you've got we your have got fire the, water there. Huh? We've got the, the grappa. Actually, if you go up to many of the areas of the Dolomites, they've got lots of grappas in jars and bottles with every kind of fruit. So you, you've uh, had your long lunch, you got your late morning, you got your little ski-in bar for a glass of champagne. <laughs> Lifts close at 6. Everybody, I understand, just kind of goes home and has a dinner and, and relaxes, and they come out later. What happens then? That happens as well. And then, for example, in Austria, they're very good at organizing events. The hotels organize things. If they've got some kind of culture where they have a bonfire and you're supposed to jump through the fire, they will do that in the evenings and burning effigies of the devil and before a ski race. And a lot of the hotels now are, are very much equipped with spas, mm-hmm. and we've got some very nice places. I love going to the sauna. What do you pay for a, a day ticket for, for all-day skiing? Oh, gosh, that varies so much from place to place. Ballpark, My nearest yards? resort, I can get a half-day ticket for 20 bucks. Really? And for an all-day ticket? But an all-day ticket, place, uh, famous place, you you're going to talk about 50 euros. 50 euros. So that's about yeah. $60, $70. I know at Vail now, an all-day ticket is $100. Yeah. So it's, it, it's it is not expensive. more expensive to ski in Europe. No. Don White, take me to your favorite ski resort and just share for me a, just a magic moment on the slopes in the Alps. Well, I think one of the magic moments I really love close by is at the town of Bormio. Bormio. And the best bit is once you've had a really good day skiing and you've perhaps had your bombardino, and that's a wonderful drink which is made with eggnog, uh, whiskey, and it's put into the cappuccino machine and frosted up and whipped cream on top. And then you go to the baths at Borromeo, which is all this natural hot water coming out of the ground. The mineral hot springs. Yes, and you're sitting in a pool uh, looking up at the sky with stars. This is Borromeo, B-O-R-M-I-O? B-O-R-M-I-O. It's a world-class resort. They've hosted the World Cup. They have excellent skiing up to 3,000 meters. And they've got these wonderful old Roman baths, which have been there for 2,000 years. You got everything. We've got it. Yep. Call, it a, <laughs> call it a ski vacation. It's a lot more than that. Yes. Don White, happy skiing. Thanks a lot. Thank you. <laughs> it's getting to be a rare opportunity to connect firsthand with the people who served during World War II to rid Europe of its Nazi terror and to restore so much of what was broken. Up next on Travel with Rick Steves, we meet a man from New Jersey who returned to his native Germany as an American soldier during World War II. Harry Etlinger tells his story as one of the Monuments Men, helping repatriate the art treasures of Europe from the massive looting of the Nazis. Mr. Etlinger is joined by Robert Edsel of the Monuments Men Foundation for an update on how their work to identify and restore Europe's lost art treasures continues to this day. Ich bin Fabian aus Deutschland und ich reise mit Rick Steves. I'm Fabian from Germany and that was German for I travel with Rick Steves. 
Ich bin Fabian aus Deutschland und ich reise mit Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Robert Edsall, who writes a book called The Monuments Men, Allied Heroes, Nazi Thieves, and the Greatest Treasure Hunt in History. We've spoken with Robert a few times in the past, and uh, we're just checking in to get up to date on The Greatest Treasure Hunt in History, a little-known story of the Allied division that was given the mission to find and protect European art treasures that had been looted by the Nazis at Hitler's command. Robert, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here again. So, Robert, there were 350 men in this division, given the task of finding millions of art treasures that were taken by the Nazis and and protecting them in one way and getting them back to their rightful places. On the other hand, how many of these 350 men survive to this day? Well, that's right, Rick. There were 350 men and women from a total of 13 nations, about 70% of whom were American. There are nine still living, uh, one woman who's British, uh, and eight men, all of whom are American, who are still living that were monuments officers during the war. And you've made a study of these people, and, and they really respect the sort of concept of patrimony, which is a word that a lot of Americans don't even think about very much. What is patrimony? Well, patrimony, uh, you're right. I mean, we're 5% of the world's population, but 95% of the people in the world use this word every day. It's an emotionally charged word. It, it pertains to works of art, cultural treasures, things that originate from a country that are part of their patrimony or heritage. I lived in Italy, as an example, for five years, and people take these things very, very seriously. They're very moved by it. I think perhaps the best comparison we'd have in the United States is how Americans look at the American flag. Some may agree with someone's right to burn it or not, but it generally evokes a strong emotional response when you see it. And this is what works of art, cultural treasures, books, churches, stained glass, mean to people throughout the world. And so this unique group of men and women prior to World War II saw the great risk to so many of these things being damaged by uh, combat, in some cases by the Western allies. And, of course, the theft of it by Adolf Hitler and the Nazis is premeditated looting what we refer to as the greatest theft in history, which set off the greatest treasure hunt in history, trying to track these things down, an effort that continues today with the Monuments Men Foundation to complete the mission of these great heroes. So you could talk about the premeditated looting by the Nazis, but there, there could be sort of an innocent looting by good-minded GIs that don't have much of an appreciation for the concept of patrimony. War is over, they stick something in their bag and take it home, and 50 years later their children have this piece of old German stuff that might be valuable to somebody else. Talk about that. Well, that's a great insight, Rick. In fact, um, many of these things that are missing, in particular documents that were taken from places like Berchtesgaden, where Hitler's home was, the Berghof in uh, the Saltkammer works, let's say, of Austria, where uh, albums of photographs or other documents that evidence the looting were gathered there. We've talked before about Hitler and Goering flipping through these catalogs of photographs looking at works of art as if it was mail-order shopping about which ones were going to go into his Fuhrer Museum. But these things were actually part of a crime scene. Now, no one understood that at the time. Many of these GIs were simply looking for a souvenir, knowing that they were going to come home, perhaps tell people that I was in Hitler's home and uh, concerned who in the world would believe them. So they were picking up anything that was lying around without understanding perhaps there was a longer-term importance. And these documents today with the Internet, can help us identify works of art that are missing and get them back to the people from whom they were stolen. And, in fact, uh, we've had a number of discoveries like that. The Monuments Men Foundation has, one of which was an important album of the works of art that were destined for Hitler's museum in Linz in the possession of an American GI, a wonderful fellow from Beechwood, Ohio, who came forward when he understood what he had, that had sat on his breakfast room table for some uh, 60 years, and he'd taken it from Hitler's home in the Berghof, and we ultimately uh, were able to get him to work with us, and I returned it to the German History Museum, the Deutsch-Historische Museum in Berlin. And I bet they were appreciative. So much so. I mean, you've traveled the world, and you know, uh, when Americans demonstrate our knowledge of respect for the culture of others uh, and our understanding of why these things are important, and it's just the ultimate example of grace, in my view, where these great military mm-hmm. heroes, these veterans of World War II, come forward in their late stages of their life, having derived a satisfaction and meaningfulness of having these wonderful memoirs of surviving the greatest war in history, and want to do that extra step 
and uh, using this, if it can, to at a minimum be preserved and perhaps help complete the mission of the Monuments Men by uh, reuniting some stolen object or cultural item with the person from whom it was taken. Man, I was up on the top of the Berchtesgarten, the eagle's nest, I think it's called, Hitler's Mountain Lyre, and uh, it's just peeled clean. It was very solid construction, and you could see chips taken off of the mantle, this fine stone mantle, uh, and just I can imagine the euphoria when when, uh, the Allies had won and they were just chipping things off and peeling off everything off the wall. But as you said, now 60 years later in Berlin, Germany's opened this incredible history museum so they can learn from their past, and uh, that's part of the mission of the Monuments Men, isn't it? Well, it is. Uh, this is these monuments officers uh, stayed in Europe for six years at the end of the war when all the millions of men and women that were in uniform were coming home. It's part of the reason that we don't know about them, say, as we do the 101st Airborne Screaming Eagles of the Tuskegee Airmen. There were so few of them, and when everybody else was coming back after the war, their work really was just beginning because they had gathered in uh, collecting points some five million cultural objects, stained glass, Torah scrolls, uh, library books by the hundreds of thousands, Mm. paintings, drawings, sculpture, trying to figure out what countries these things came from and working on getting them back to these various countries. So it's a remarkable uh, achievement, and yet there's still millions of things missing, works of art, documents, and manuscripts. And the role of the Monuments Men Foundation is to work with veterans or heirs of veterans or anyone that may have innocently bought these things and advise them so that we can help uh, illuminate the path home for these objects. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Robert Edsel, who writes Monuments Men, Allied Heroes, Nazi Thieves, and the Greatest Treasure Hunt in History. The story of the Allied division whose mission was to recover all the great art looted by the Nazis in World War II. And as uh, Robert mentioned, the force of 350 men is uh, dwindling, and a handful are still with us. And one of these heroes is Mr. Harry Ettlinger, who uh, was the last Jewish boy to have a bar mitzvah in Karlsruhe, Germany. He was 13 years old, and uh, this was just before that horrific Kristallnacht when Germany just turned everything upside down on on German Jews, and their family fled. Uh, A few days later to the United States, uh, Harry went to grade school in America uh, for a few years, and in 1945, Harry went back to Europe as a German Jew from the United States as part of the Monuments Men mission. Mr. Ettlinger, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Mr. Ettlinger, tell us what it was like when you were at Berchtesgarten, standing in Hitler's living room. Obviously, it was quite an experience, realizing that at that particular level, uh, Hitler had his dreams to become Führer, leader of the world. Uh, (laughs) I I took a few little items with me, uh, I'll admit, the lapels of his SS generals, but I can still visualize the table on which uh, the book that Robert was just talking about was sitting in order to be looked at by Adolf Hitler. The Eagle's Nest. The Eagle's Nest, yeah. So this is quite a dramatic situation. I mean, and it's beautiful uh, stonework and and a, a glorious building on top of a mountain, and you were there. And I was also at the castle of Neuschwanstein, which was the collection point for the group who uh, were involved in stealing uh, items, treasures of the people and the institution of other countries, storing them in this famous castle, which is a tourist attraction. This is the famous Disneyland castle that tourists always say, the Neuschwanstein, <laughs> Mad Ludwig's castle. And we go there, and it's all fairy tale, Bavarian king kind of stuff. But after the war, you came there, and what did you find? 1945, the treasures of the French Jewish people. The treasures? Uh, especially the Rothschild family, the paintings, the furniture, the household goods was stacked from bottom to top, yes. In the castle? In the the castle castle. itself. Wow. In the castle itself. It was restricted to only those individuals who were part of the Monuments Fine Arts and Archives section 
now known as the Monuments Men of the United States Army. Now, when I think of Mr. Edlinger, when I think of the chaos in Baghdad after uh, Saddam Hussein was overthrown and all the society was let loose and the American troops were there and everybody looted the museums and everything was so much was lost, I would imagine Germany was that way immediately after World War II. How did the Rothschild's treasures in this castle not get just picked away by all sorts of hungry, desperate, looting mobs of people? Because unlike what we have done, this country and any other country uh, in history, we did something different. We prepared ourselves to halt the destruction and the return of stolen work for part. Back in 1943, the Roberts Commission was formed by the president after it became uh, realized that the Nazis were perpetrating the greatest blunder and destruction in the history of civilization. And at that particular time, we prepared ourselves to, in lieu of taking spoils of war, to return the stolen precious. No country in the history of civilization had ever done that. So in 1943, we anticipated the potential chaos and the, and the forever loss of the patrimony of Western civilization. And it, was, and it was our country who foresaw that and established your group to help control this chaos. Yeah, it was the only time, as we realized in history, that a nation undertook such a task. And I preach that we Americans ought to be very proud of having done something which no other country had done before, nor has done since that particular time. You must be very proud. I'm very proud to be an American, and I think all Americans ought to be proud of what we did. And inspired to do that kind of thoughtfulness, I hope, in the future. I saw a, on CBS about a year ago a video on the destruction taken by the Taliban where they destroyed the Buddhist figures that are at the heart of the Buddhist religion. Towards the end of it, they show a banner over the entry of the museum in Kabul, the art museum. And it says, in effect, no nation can exist without culture and history. And that's what Robert Edsel and you and all of us should be preaching. We have to respect each other as human beings, and we have to respect each other in our culture, or we will no longer exist as an organized form of civilization. I'm speaking with Mr. Harry Etlinger, who is one of the original Monuments Men, and as a young man with his family had to flee Germany and then lived in the United States for five or six years and went back fighting with American troops as part of the Monuments Men Division, instructed to save the treasures of our civilization looted by the Nazis. Mr. Atlinger, in the 60-some years since your experience there, do you have any souvenir in your home or of, uh, something that reminds you of, of that exciting time in your life that, that you look at to this day, something in your living room, perhaps? Yes. I have a print of a painting that is the masterpiece in the Museum of Art in the city that I was born, a self-portrait of Rembrandt worth tens of millions of dollars, but the print was made by an artist in the 1920s, a print of an etching, and my grandfather was a collector of prints, uh, and I recovered them. And uh, I found 
this particular print uh, about a year ago, and it's now hanging in my living room. All I can come along and say is a painting may be worth uh, tens of millions of dollars, but the print has been evaluated by Sotheby's as being maybe $300. But I can assure you it's not for sale. <laughs> and this is the print of your, your grandfather's that you found? Uh, that I was able to retrieve and send back to the United States, yes. And Robert Edsel, um, how many such pieces of arts have been retrieved by the Monuments Men? Well, Rick, it's it really is an incredible story. You figure um, in the devastated continent of Europe, with no resources, uh, fuels shortage, uh, just finding research books, these monuments officers set up overnight basically the equivalent of a museum the size of the Louvre and the Met, hmm. and uh, gathered all these stolen objects. In Munich, it was primarily paintings and sculpture. In Offenbach, Germany, it was library books, Torah scrolls. Freemason materials. There were more than 5,000 church bells stolen from the cathedrals throughout Europe in Bremen on a, on a uh, ship dock there. And they laboriously went through to try and figure out what countries these things came from. By the time they came home in 1951, they'd returned more than 5 million cultural objects. And uh, there are still, as I mentioned earlier, hundreds of thousands of works of art and more than a million when we get into documents and other important items that either aid with people recovering their objects or the objects themselves. And it's one of the things the Monuments Men Foundation prides itself in doing is working with anybody. We are 501c3, a not-for-profit entity. We don't charge anybody. Uh, We have a website, monumentsmenfoundation.org. And we're there to complete the mission of the Monuments Men, like Harry, in illuminating the path for these things to find their way back to their rightful owner. My son, I gave you the jackboots, and the brown shirt came from me. But had I known what I now know, I'd have hanged myself, I'd have hanged myself from a tree. And when I saw your arm, son, raised high in the Hitler salute, I did not know all those arms, son, would wither, would wither, would wither at the root. That's Lottie Lenya with Bertolt Brecht's Song of a German Mother. There's more with Robert Edsel and Monuments Man Harry Etlinger in just a moment on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Mr. Harry Etlinger, one of the last surviving original Monuments Men, and Robert Edsel, who writes Monuments Men, Allied Heroes, Nazi Thieves, and the Greatest Treasure Hunt in History. Robert, I'm a little confused about what happened with the mission of the Monuments Men before and after the war. Clearly, after the war was over, the mission is find all the art and get it back to its original place. How were the Monuments Men busy while the war was still raging? Well, before uh, we had boots on the ground, if we want to use that current day phrase, the monuments officers were developing maps of the great cultural targets in Europe to try and steer Allied bombing away from them and avoid hitting churches and other important 
cultural structures. As the boots were on the ground, they were attached to the various armies, 3rd Army, General Patton's Army, 9th Army, 12th Army groups, and so on, to try and steer artillery and other uh, shelling away from the great cultural targets. Of course, there were a lot of damages, in particular along the coast of Normandy, to soften up the landing beaches. But these monuments officers, inasmuch as they were early into these cities, they weren't sitting in an office somewhere. In fact, two of them were killed during combat, would uh, get into the cities and see the destruction and effect temporary repairs as much as they could before moving along with the frontline troops to the next city. As they arrived and started noticing uh, church treasures missing, works of art from museums, and of course the mass looting of so many private collectors, Jews in particular, it set off this greatest treasure hunt in history, tracking down, doing the detective work to try and locate where these things have been hidden, and it led them to thousands of salt mines, caves, and castles, and the discovery of so many of these looted works of uh, culture. What a story. When you're thinking about this thrilling notion that you've got these troops that are counseling the combat officers as they're racing to Berlin on, don't hurt that, that's really important. Oh, can't we just kind of steer a little bit to the left here? Is that literally what they were doing? Yes, and much to their surprise, it worked. Uh, you had these monuments officers who were middle-aged. Most of them were in their mid-40s, accomplished museum directors, curators, librarians, artists themselves, advising superior officers who, in many cases, were half their age, uh, the age of some of the kids that they taught in some of the colleges these guys came from. Uh, they were in disbelief that this would work, but they would write home in the letters that we've included, uh, some of their letters in the Monuments Men book, to their wives and loved ones and say, you know, the people in Europe are realizing that when they see us try and repair their damaged cultural objects or buildings, when they see that we're gathering their works of art and protecting them, not stealing them, we're able to convince them that we're not going to let them freeze to death during the winter and that we're going to feed them. So it really was step-by-step um, step winning over the hearts and minds of people the hard way, and that was a great vision, I think, of General Eisenhower and the other Western Allied leaders was if you're really going to convince people you're there to help, you have to show respect for the things that they value and treasure. So it was altruistic in the sense of saving the patrimony, but at the same time, you could make a case that General Eisenhower said, this is a very constructive thing to do to win the hearts and minds of the defeated German nation. Well, that's not only true, Rick, but uh, I think to the bigger point, um, what's the consequence? The Nazis were using propaganda very effectively to say Americans are barbarians, they're coming here to destroy your culture and steal your objects. People back then hadn't traveled worldwide like people do today, and a lot of people believed it. So had we gone over there, I mean, can you imagine having destroyed some of these great cultural treasures inadvertently, the Nazi propaganda would have absolutely drilled us. And this is the great role that the Monuments Men Foundation plays going forward, is not only to preserve the legacy of people like Harry and others, but to put it to use so that when we have other events in the future, say the aftermath of the looting of the National Museum of Iraq and Baghdad and its National Archives, that we as a nation do a better job and don't lower the standard that these monuments officers gave their lives for during World War II and did so, so successfully. During the race to Berlin, give me an example of a triumph where something might have been bulldozed and bombed but was saved. I mean, I think one of the things which Harry was instrumental in, and I know he'll have a chance to, to tell you firsthand, not only was he with one of the earliest groups of troops that arrived at the castle of Neuschwanstein, where the great concern was that in the closing days in this period I refer to in the book as the void, where the Nazis don't control it anymore, but the uh, Western allies don't control it yet, that some of these Nazi fanatics would not only try and destroy their documentation, their extensive documentation of the theft, but also many of the works of art to keep them out of the hands of the victor. So it was not just a matter of trying to protect these works from looting, but also protect them from the Nazis destroying them, and Harry accompanied one of the great monuments officers, Jim Rohrmer, who went on to become the sixth director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art after the war. But Harry was also in the salt mine in Heilbronn, where there were important, really irreplaceable works of art and cultural treasures, stained glass from uh, the church in Strasbourg that the Nazis had stolen, and had to work amidst nitroglycerin and other great risks, not only to his life, but to these other soldiers that were there and many of the great cultural treasures. So this was a race against time to save these things, not only from the problems of war 
displaced persons, but also Nazis that were in, determined to take to their grave these stolen objects. Mr. Adlinger, tell us what this was like. The Heilbrunn mine, the, the Nazis were uh, storing art and hiding art down in tunnels and chambers of these vast mines. Take us into the Heilbrunn mine when you went there. What did you find? What was it like? Well, unlike uh, what people normally think of mines, these were huge chambers, 60 feet wide, 40 feet high, and a mile long, and a number of them, and there were smaller chambers in which were stored the treasures from all over Germany for safekeeping. One of the items that they took is a stained glass window from the Cathedral of Strasbourg, which was not too far away, for safety purposes. It happened to be the first items that were returned by the monuments men to the nation from which it came from. So Alsace was returned to the French. Strasbourg is a great French city in Alsace, just over the border from Germany. They have a great cathedral with wonderful medieval stained glass. Right. And this stained glass was taken out by the Nazis and put in, a, in an old mine in Heilbronn. Well, it was a working mine. Okay. And not only that, but it also happened to be places for underground factories. Wow. One of the great things that was done by the great heroine, uh, Rose Volant, who's in the book, she advised Captain Romer about those underground factories in addition to the fact that they had stored uh, 40,000 cases of treasures. 40,000 crates of treasures in the Heilbronn right. mine. In the Heilbronn and Kochendorf, in the two mines. And what was decided, instead of putting up another collection point, they, uh, the monuments officers, Jim Romer, uh, had Lieutenant Dale Ford and myself, a buck private, assigned to Heilbronn to fill out any... Uh, stolen items that were located in that particular mine. So you got four collection points, three from the above ground and one from under. But the, but the Germans took the French stained glass into yes. Germany and hid it because after the war they wanted to put it back or take it to a different place. What was yes, their purpose? Yes, they wanted to put it back. It was for, for safety purposes. The Germans took it away to protect it from being damaged? Well, that's yes. interesting. Yes. Why would that be, Robert? Well, the, the Nazis were interested in certain works of art that they, of course, stole and other works of art that they were trying to protect that they considered Germanic in nature. So ah, in as much as Strasbourg. this castle in Strasbourg is looked at as German, ah. not French. And so they want to protect these. I mean, what Harry was referring to in Heilbronn were the collections from some of the great German cities that were now being pummeled by Western Allied bombing. And so in an effort to protect those things during combat, they hid these things in their German salt mines, along with other things that were stolen. And in this instance, of course, the people in France looked at the removal as theft. The Germans said, well, it's all Germanic in nature. We're not really stealing anything because ultimately Alsace will be part of Germany. Well, that's because Germans historically have thought the Vosges Mountains have been the proper border between the French and German people, and the French thought the Rhine River should be, and the area in between is disputed. And, of course, if Hitler won, he would have pushed that border back to the Vosges Mountains, and Strasbourg would be rightfully German. There we go. Wow, that clarifies that. From Dallas, Texas, the head of the Monuments Men Foundation, Robert Edsel, is our guest. And one of the actual Monuments men, Harry Etlinger, joins us by phone from his home in New Jersey. The goal of Robert's organization is to finish the job of identifying and restoring Europe's stolen art treasures and artifacts from World War II. Robert's website is monumentsmenfoundation.org, and his book on the Monuments Men is now out in paperback. He's also paired up with the National World War II Museum to present a guided tour of European sites associated with the work of the Monuments Men. There's a link to his blog and extra material from today's interview in the radio section of our website, ricksteves.com. Mr. Ettlinger, were you drafted or did you enlist? And how did you end up actually in the Monuments Men rather than charging into Berlin with the troops in the Battle of the Bulge? Well, I was 
drafted in the United States Army in August of 1944. By the way, my brother enlisted in the Navy. He was one year younger than I am. Like virtually every German-Jewish man who came here ended up in the armed forces of this country and went back in order to provide the kind of service that they were able. I ended up being trained as an infantry replacement and went back overseas. And on my 19th birthday, I was in a transient camp at 30 miles behind the Battle of the Bulge. And I ended up on a truck along with 2,500 other infantry replacements. When I got pulled out, I was one of three men uh, for reasons that I never found out until months later. And I traveled with this transient camp from uh, France into Belgium, into Germany, and found myself in uh, Munich a week before the war ended. And some man came to me on the second day and asked me if I could speak German and translate German. I said, sure. Uh, they could use him in that office a block away. So the next day, I walked into the office, and I joined the monuments men. Captain Romer interviewed me, and that's how I joined the monuments men. And then when you joined the monuments men, what was the labor like? What was a typical day? Well, they had me translate or look at German letters, German documents, and get the gist of what these documents said. Two weeks after I became a monuments man, Captain Jim Romer took me into a jail in Munich, and he had me interrogate Heinrich Hoffmann, who was a personal valet, a photographer, and an art agent for Adolf Hitler. Uh, I traveled with Captain Romer to Berchtesgaden and to Neuschwanstein. I finally found a home so I could uh, do something constructive. Mr. Ettlinger, as a 19-year-old boy, did you appreciate the importance of the art that you were working with? Yes, uh, absolutely, because I was raised to appreciate art. As I mentioned, my grandfather was a collector, and while I never ended up as an art historian or a museum director or anything else like that, family always had a great appreciation for art. So over here as a Jew, I was never permitted during Hitler's time to go into the art museum, the Kunsthalle Karlsruhe, in which uh, they had hundreds of paintings, including that Rembrandt that I was talking about. You were from a Jewish family in Karlsruhe in Germany, and yes. even before Kristallnacht, you loved art, your family was art collectors, and you were never allowed to go into the Karlsruhe Art Museum. Yes. You get to go back five, six, eight years later and be sure that great art goes back to their original places and everybody is welcome to enjoy that patrimony. Correct. That's a beautiful mission. Makes me feel good, should make you feel good that we as a government did that. You must have seen a lot of art in a lot of dark and dank places, Mr. Atlinger. Tell me the the single most beautiful art experience or the, the feeling of wonder when you opened a crate and you realized what you were saving? One of the items I saw in the mine happened to be a painting by a early German artist, Grünewald, who had a picture of a Madonna in a church in Stubach, Germany. Is this Grunewald, did you say? Yeah. Grunewald. He is fantastic and a very mysterious and rare high middle-aged artist with the yeah. uh, Eisenheim altarpiece in Colmar. And he had this painting, and I found out that that painting was stored in the mine, and that was a treasure that everybody was looking at, especially Captain Rommel who, having been a curator in the Metropolitan Museum of Fine Arts in New York, offered the outrageous sum of $2 million 
for that painting at that particular time, and it was turned down. I don't think the, that church would sell that painting for a billion dollars mm-hmm. today. What an incredible experience that must have been. Mr. Harry Atlinger, thank you so much for what you did and your fellow monuments men for the patrimony of Western civilization. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Robert Edsall, the author of The Monuments Men. Robert, I would imagine you enjoy traveling Europe and and just some sightseeing. And when you enjoy the art treasures of Europe today, let's close by just having you share which spot you're most moved and thankful for the work of, of these monuments men. Well, Rick, there are so many great places in Europe. Of course, Paris with the Louvre, uh, the Jeux de Pont Museum, which everyone that walks through the Place de la Concorde walk by without knowing its pivotal role during the war. Berchtesgarden is a fantastically interesting place. It's horrific in some senses, the heart of Adolf Hitler's existence there in the Austrian Alps. It's beautiful up on top of Eagle's Nest, and you can walk through a remarkably well-designed visitor center to understand why that part of Austria was so important to Hitler. The Castle of Neuschwanstein, another place that Harry Etlinger and the Monuments Men were, where some 20,000 paintings stolen from the French collectors were found as a result of the secret information Rose Vallant had gathered. There are smaller places along the way, a cemetery outside Maastricht where one of the monuments officers is buried, a fellow named Walter Hutchhausen, killed during combat protecting works of art. For me, when I think about places such as Munich that had the Fuhrerbau and uh, one of the Nazi party headquarters that stored so many of these works of art, to me it's a remarkable achievement to think that these monuments officers stayed in Europe and worked in what was the Nazi Party headquarters in Hitler's office there in Koenigsplatz, gathering these works of art and staying there, trying to sort out where they came from. And for me, it's not just a specific work of art. I mean, I certainly love to see that great painting by Leonardo da Vinci, the Chartoresque Lady with an Ermine in uh, Krakow, out of a personal affection and Leonardo's great brilliance. But when I think about these monuments officers and what they went through just surviving the war, surviving combat, the irony, working in the headquarters of evil during the war in Munich with all these works of art trying to get them back. It's an incredibly heroic effort. Harry Etlinger is one of the heroes, and it's an honor for me to represent them today through the work of the Monuments Men Foundation. Robert Edsel, author of Monuments Men and founder and president of the Monuments Men Foundation, I'm really thankful for the work that you do to keep the mission of the Monuments Men alive and share it with our public. Best wishes with your work, and, and thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at KERA Dallas for their help today. There's more about our guests in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And join us next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Germany, Austria and Switzerland, Berlin, Prague and Vienna, and the heart of Belgium and Holland. For a free catalogue and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.